Hey everybody, welcome back to the BMB Grad Podcast. I'm Allie. And I'm Grace. Today our guest is Najee Husseini. He's an associate teaching professor and the associate director of undergraduate studies at the Joint Department of Biomedical Engineering at UNC Chapel Hill and NC State University. He's an all-around awesome educator that taught courses for Grace and I on material science, biomaterials, statistics, MATLAB, you name it, he could teach anything. He graduated from the University of Michigan in 2012 with his PhD in applied physics and is here today to talk about what it's like to be a teaching faculty member for a BME department. Here we go. Hey, Najee, so good to see you again. Um, so as we mentioned, you're currently an associate teaching professor and the associate director of undergraduate studies within the joint BME department at UNC and NC State. Can you uh, just start us off by giving a little more background of those roles and your responsibilities for that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So as a teaching professor, my primary responsibility is to teach students. And um, as a lot of jobs do, I have a set of mutual expectations with a department of which 90% of my time is teaching and about 10% of my time is service. So 90% of the time is teaching classes, office hours, advising students, and then the service would be on various committees, developing curricula, um, reviewing research proposals, and other things like that. So my typical day is spent with students rather than more in research projects like tenure track professors might. So day to day, you're teaching at both campuses because it's a joint program, right? Mm -hmm. So you, I, from what I understand, you teach one day at you know one university, and at the next days, you know Tuesday, Thursdays at the next campus, um, and that's used like you said, mostly student face to face. Is mm -hmm. there what's kind of the difference between um, you know teaching and then like office hours? What's that kind of balance look like? Well, the, uh, so the teaching is engaging with a large group of people and trying to get a good message across in a less kind of personal way. Um, I'd like to connect with every student, but when there are 80 students, that's a lot of people to connect with. The office hours and the individual meetings are some of my more preferred methods, because then I can sit down with somebody, find out what their problems are, address those directly. Um, maybe we have a digression into another conversation. Maybe it goes from talking about the merits of using titanium versus cobalt in a hip implant to suddenly we're talking about why you got into biomedical engineering in the first place and why you think you want to be an Instagram influencer instead. So those opportunities to interact <laughs> with students individually are fun. And yeah, I do go between both campuses. It's a little unusual in a job. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I teach at NC State. Tuesday, Thursday, I teach at UNC. And it's good in a joint program to have somebody that interfaces with both campuses so that I can really bring a, a feeling of connection, a feeling of true jointness uh, in the program rather than calling us joint and never really having any intermixing. It's so true, actually, like just thinking about my talks with like, you know, previous grads from the program. And I'm like talking about something you, you said in class. And it's nice to be able to connect with people at state because there's some teachers at UNC, we just didn't really have that connection. So even like as alumni, it makes us feel like we had more of a shared experience as undergrads. But um, so I'm wondering that 10% service time, how mm -hmm. do you, who dictates that? Do you pick and choose what those things are? Are there things the department is requiring you to do? Well, for the, for the dictating amounts of time, um, yeah. there is this, um, I guess, myth that I work 40 hours a week of which 36 is teaching and four is service. 
Now, I'm sure you two both work 40 hours a week as well, and not a minute more than that. Um, so I do what I can in those times. And really, it's not a, uh, it's something that I, uh, we, we try to maintain, but honestly, I'll spend as much time as I need to to get the jobs done. The service activities are important to the department. So I, I'm on some, mostly committees that I do have some interest in, and I do enjoy um, developing curricula, um, helping uh, a professor's syllabus so that it has attainable, measurable goals in their objectives, rather than saying something like, I want all my students to love biomaterials. Good luck measuring love of biomaterials. You need something more actionable, like um, write an uh, NIH proposal that could be funded. That's something that you could be a little bit more concrete with. Other things like uh, developing uh, inter-campus activities. So some of the there's an undergraduate affairs committee where something we might discuss is how to get more interaction. So we've had, for example, now we have all of our sophomore orientation. In the past, we did it at a Durham Bulls game. So we would invite all the sophomores from both campuses, give them a little of information, have some food, and then go to a minor league baseball game, which was kind of a fun bonding experience. So coming up with ideas like that to improve the program, both academically and socially, and then reaching out, uh, finding ways to improve students' uh, industrial contacts or getting them experience about what they can do after they graduate. Those are all service activities where they're not directly related to teaching a subject matter. And so um, when you said develop curricula, it, that would be, that would fall under, you would be doing that for other professors and courses that are not your own. Not necessarily. Not, not necessarily. Um, so they would, what we might do is, so a professor would come up with a, say a, a new um, polymeric biomaterials class. Mm -hmm. What we might do is then we would look at the syllabus and the course, the, the content that they'd like to cover and see, is there a substantial overlap with earlier classes? Is it, um, too far away from the prerequisites. So we might look to see how it fits within the global curriculum. Is it too similar to another class? And then we might help them with a syllabus to, as I mentioned before, making some measurable things because we do have to go through accreditation. And one of the things accreditors look for are actual goals that can be measured. And there's a whole, uh, you go to teacher school, you learn some of these things about how to design <laughs> objectives and use certain words. So that's the kind of thing we might do. But no, we don't come up with classes and say, um, Grace, you're now teaching this class. And then Grace says, what is that? I don't know. We would help them develop something. Right. Speaking of, you know, metrics, how, how are you evaluated in this teaching role? Are there certain metrics that you look for every semester um, that you have to report back on? What is the, what's that kind of look like? For me personally or for my classes? Well, for you personally, I think okay. classes, you know, classes or just like grading. Or just like <laughs> someone in your role in general, like I, is there a certain way, are there like performance metrics that you're striving to meet? Like, mm -hmm. well, it's so there, the whole um, matter of assessing teaching is a complex topic that's fraught with numbers that may not mean anything, unconscious biases that alter numbers. So I can touch on a few of the ways that I'm assessed. So one of them is the simple teaching evaluations. So at the end of the semester, you go through on a Likert scale and one through five scale and say one through five, effective at this, effective at that, effective teacher. And those numbers mean something. Sometimes that just means you may like the professor or there have been studies that have shown that female professors generally get lower marks than male professors. And there are some other unconscious effects that happen. So those numbers, while important, are not uh, always the best assessment of teaching abilities. All so fives you, for you, though, Najee. Uh, all fives for me? All well, fives <laughs> always. 
fives. Well, I appreciate it. Um, there, I got a four once and I'm still trying to live that one down, but I do oh, go for the fives. Still recovering from a four. Oh no. Oh, oh, man. Who would it, dare? Who would dare? It was, tough. it was tough. And I think it was probably because, you know, with a, I can't think of something to say, so you can cut that out. But as, as you go through <laughs> that with the, 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 um, they're the assessment metrics of the teaching evaluations. The comments are also important. The comments give me what's working, what doesn't. But again, from a student perspective, they may not see the global picture. They may just say that they like the class because it was easy or that they like the instructor. So the other ways that you might look is to see how people perform in later classes. So are you preparing students with a sophomore level class to succeed in junior and senior level classes? That's a little bit more difficult to assess, but that's the kind of thing where faculty are having discussions. They may say that that needs to be addressed, but that's harder to measure directly on my job. Other things would be really peer evaluation. So every semester or every year, I'll have two of my peer faculty members sit in on a class of mine and rate on, uh, we have a form for that, things like uh, uh, quality of the presentation of the material, background, knowledge, engagement with the students. They'll try to make a note of how many students are sleeping. Typically, Allie would be asleep, I'm sure, but she's oh, in, the please. in the front row. Yeah, you, you were always in the front row. So you look at those <laughs> kinds of things from your peers, and that's another factor. And all of this stuff goes. So when you go up for promotion in a teaching track, you put together every teaching evaluation, peer evaluation, every course evaluation. And then I'll write summaries of how I've developed classes. And all of that stuff is used to assess in a teaching role my success or my effectiveness. And you might also bring in things like outside conference presentations or papers on teaching research type topics in related areas. But it is really uh, there. There aren't that. It's hard to come up with concrete metrics because these things are so difficult to measure. Right. That's what I imagined. That's why I was curious. You know how they kind of look at success and improvement because mm -hmm. I, I've been thinking about it since we talked about doing this episode, and I was like, I have no idea how it even mm -hmm. go about about measuring that. So I mean, those sound like good ways. It is subjective in nature, so mm -hmm. that makes sense to me. And then as long as nobody complains about you in particular, um, that's obviously individual student comments to uh, faculty members uh, in reporting roles, that's also an issue. Um, you know, you don't want to um, have a student coming and having a serious problem that they need to have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with a faculty member or an ombudsman. Um, but It won't happen. That won't no. happen. On a lighter note, can you give us like one or two things about your job that you do love? I love working with people. Uh, I mean, it's a very engaging role that between the lectures and the office hours, you get to interact with different people in different ways constantly. And because of that, always with different people, it's a very dynamic environment. I'm never dealing with the same people for more than three years unless they decide to interview you on a podcast later on. So every year there's <laughs> constant turnover. I get new people and it's just fun to keep working with people. Irony being is uh, I wasn't all that much of an extroverted person this before when I was a student, but some of that just comes forced that you need to be an engaging person, be welcoming and try to, to, to get people comfortable enough to give you uh, their honest feelings or have questions and feel comfortable asking for you things. So that's one thing I enjoy. The other thing is I, at heart, I'm, I, I'm more of a scientist than an engineer. And I like learning things sometimes just for the sake of learning something. I think it's cool to be able to say, don't take that Pyrex, uh, 
that Pyrex baking dish and put it underwater because it could implode. You can put it in the hot because it's okay to heat something because ceramics are generally better resistant at compression. Put it underwater, it could implode because it has a lot of compression due to thermal stresses. To me, that's tension due to stresses. That's cool. I want to be able to discuss and say, <laughs> this is why this is happening in the world. And that's partly the personality that you have. That's what draws people to science. It's just knowledge is neat. I like to be able to explain things, even if my son just rolls his eyes when I start using big words again. The Your passion for what you do, like, is so apparent. And the, quote, 40-hour work week is so un, not real for you. I mean, like, Najee would answer emails at, like, two within minutes two, after you sent them. Within two, two minutes. minutes when you sent that desperate email at 11.45 p.m. So um, there have been emails that I replied to when I woke up in the morning and had to go to the bathroom and just said, all right, I'll just answer this one and go back to bed. So sometimes people have wondered why there was an email at 3 a.m. So it's... yes, I was one of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the, I mean, like, not only like the actions and the it's just the actions and the enthusiasm, right? It, you can tell you really love what you do. So and part of this good... is... I, I think a lot of people, you, as you go through your college, as you go through work, you, you, see, you, you see what people do, you see what your colleagues do, you see what your superiors do. And if you're really thinking about how to present yourself and be a better person, you say, I like what that person did, I don't like what that person did. And then you try to mold yourself to be what you want to be. So I had instructors that would never hand back assignments until the end of the semester. Mm -hmm. I had instructors that turned their back and never turned around again. And I didn't like those. So I said, if I do this, I don't want to be like that. I had some instructors that really made personal connections with the students and made you feel like you were, you were an not quite, not necessarily an equal, but that they were learning alongside you or that their goal was to take your hand and to lead you through this fraught minefield of science and engineering. And those were the people that I stayed in touch with. And I said, I want to be like that person. So whether it's teaching or, or life, you look at the people, see what they do, see what they shouldn't do, and then figure out how to be the best person you can. And I think that applies to any job you could do. Yeah, and as a student, it really drove me to care more and try harder in your classes than in others. So, um, yeah, Definitely. thanks. <laughs> Definitely. So, could you give us a uh, like leading up to what you do now? Can you just give us like a quick career path of like where you started and, and how you got here? Yeah, because um, I think maybe some students would identify with your path and understanding like maybe they want to go into teaching rather than industry. Mm -hmm. So my, my undergrad degree is in engineering physics, and I wanted to be a mathematician. My dad said engineering, we compromised at engineering physics. And engineering physics, even though it's not biomedical engineering, it has a, a lot of similarities because in engineering physics, you did mechanics, electronics, uh, quantum mechanics, statistical mechanics, fluids. You did all of the, all of the physics. And then you're supposed to get a job right afterwards. You have such a broad basis that it sometimes can be difficult to get a job. So in my case, I was hoping for industry after I graduated. Um, and in fact, I did a five year, uh, I did a master's of engineering with the intention of going into industry afterwards. And I mean, I'll be honest, I liked it all or I didn't like any of it. It's hard to say. So I was a little bit lost and I did, I, I started doing undergraduate research in the junior to senior year between those. And I realized I kind of liked it. Ignore the fact that my initial project was cryopreservation of sperm and that the first date that I went on with my now wife was to collect bovine sperm at an insemination factory. We got married <laughs> still despite that. But this was uh, doing research and saying, here's a problem. So no romantic, Najee. So oh, romantic. I am. <laughs> it worked out. They're married now. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 
I wouldn't recommend it to everybody, but it's it didn't it didn't hurt my chances. I mean, a physicist <laughs> and a date at the uh, bovine insemination clinic. But um, what I realized is that just doing research because something hasn't been solved was kind of a neat thing to do. So even though I'd intended on industry, since I didn't really know where my passions were, and I realized I liked research, I decided to go into grad school because I mm -hmm. thought that I could continue to solve problems that hadn't been done. So if I hadn't done undergraduate research, I wouldn't have known that I wanted to do research. I would have probably gone to industry. I don't know where I would have ended up since it was a little difficult for somebody with a broad basis to do that. Um, I didn't do an internship. I tried to do a co-op and I ran into a BME type of problem, which is when I did that co-op, they said, so my first interview was, what exactly is engineering physics? Because it was advertised mm -hmm. for electrical engineers. And I was not prepared. I hadn't listened to any podcasts for the engineering physicists. So I didn't have a good answer for what an applied engineering physicist was. So anyway, since I liked the research, I liked the physics, I went to grad school in applied physics. And there I narrowed it down a little bit. So I found an advisor and that's a subject for probably another podcast is how to find how to be successful in grad school and find a good advisor. I found mm. a good advisor, but of note was that my advisor, in addition to being a successful successful researcher, he had chaired the department of, of he was the applied physics program chair at Michigan, and he had a focus on teaching. He was uh, interested in teaching. He was interested on on outreach and development, recruiting uh, underrepresented minorities into the program, and really trying to make a good, strong program, not just research-wise, but the people that were in there. Mm -hmm. And as my advisor, that passion did rub off on me a little bit, although I was still intending to go into some sort of semiconductor or device physics after I graduated. Um, as far as why I got into teaching, well, I taught I, I, I taught martial arts. I taught Taekwondo for approximately 20 years, and that was always a side gig. I never thought that that would be my job. So I had a lot of teaching experience, which is why when I have a class of 80 people, I can still make the person in the back feel like I'm in their ear yelling at them because I learned to project over a bunch <laughs> of screaming people. So that was a side gig. And then I TA'd a lot when I was a graduate student. And I realized that when I couldn't find industry jobs after I moved to North Carolina, um, again, looking in semiconductor and device physics, I had this teaching thing that I'd always enjoyed doing, but I never identified it as a potential career path. And I did have this advisor at Michigan, but he never really told me that you could make something out of this. I think he maybe tacitly said it, but I think mm -hmm. I didn't acknowledge it. So once I found that there were some positions, I applied, I got some teaching experience, and then I was able to get a full-time job. So where did that passion for teaching come from? It was... Uh, essentially sports coach and TAing. And if I hadn't TAed in school, I wouldn't have known that it was really something I like doing at the academic level. Yeah, I guess, I guess that's, that's what I'm wondering is why college and not um, like high school or anything lower? Oh man, the high school, K through 12 teachers have so much respect for me because of the stuff that they can do that my job is to teach and if I advise, but if somebody has a problem, if somebody has problems at home, I refer them to somebody else in the university that their, their jobs at the K through 12 level is, is sometimes thankless, but infinitely more difficult than the things that I do. Um, I think I enjoyed the college level because I like to, I, I, I like to think, I guess, at that level, I like the advanced um, end of math and sciences and I would love to be able to teach elementary school. I don't think I'm good enough to do that. Those people are incredible. So maybe staying a little bit closer to the material and the learning rather than yeah. the personal development of, of, you know, younger students. Yeah. Even um, though you do that anyways, but <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> you're not giving yourself enough credit, but yeah. 
it's, it's different. It, it's different kinds of things, but yeah, right, I, I think right. yeah, it's tough at grade school. Oh yeah. Sure. Definitely. I mean, I figured I'd ask you the question, but it's daunting. I mean, also, <laughs> I think once you get a PhD, it's it's going to be hard to go back. I don't know if yeah. you, I might be seen as overqualified for a you know ninth grade math teacher. Um, but yeah, I didn't try. Gotcha. Yeah. So, um, what would you say, just to like draw some lines in the sand for people, are some of the key distinctions between being a professor and being in industry? I know it's like a huge yeah question. well it's, it's it's how does it feel how does it feel I, I i i can't say much about industry having not been in there but my feeling is that i have i have a lot of responsibilities but i have very few i guess concrete time commitments so of in a given day i really only need to be available for two hours so i have if I have a dentist appointment, if I have to go home, take care of a sick kid, as long as I teach my class, I have a huge amount of flexibility. So there's that. I am held to certain standards. I mentioned those before, um, but really um, it's, it's it, I, there are the only people re relying on me are students. And if I let the students down, that's terrible, but it's not as though there's a product. Uh, I guess the students are a product, um, not a great answer. Um, well, you're not you're not being driven by money, uh, money or bottom line or too right. many deadlines, right? Yeah. And there's so much that comes along with that. It's also and I there's think always it depends on the person. I mean, I, I try to hold myself to strong deadlines as far as the week to week, but um, I, I think I, in teaching in general, you have fewer, I guess fewer specific responsibilities. There's not a design presentation at this time. I don't have to meet with this person at this time as often. I, it's, a, it's a good amount of flexibility. And I mean, sometimes I get paid to just get to know people. Um, so so mm -hmm. some, some parts of the job are genuinely fun. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there are fun parts of the industry, but I'm sure you do things that you don't want. I feel like most of the time I'm enjoying what I'm doing. Uh, there are very few things that I don't like to do. One of them is grading, but um, otherwise nearly everything else I do. Lecturing, that's fun. Uh, it's, it's a horse and pony show sometimes, uh, and uh, it's fun to do. Just make your TAs do the grading. It's not your uh, problem. I assign the TAs. I don't always <laughs> give myself TAs. So it's usually me at uh, 3 a.m. so that I can not only grade, but reply to Grace's email at 3 a.m. Right. I appreciate it. Still appreciate okay, it. Well, <laughs> what about um, like your perceived, uh, and I don't know if you feel this way, like your perceived passion and impact in uh, a teaching role versus maybe in an industry role? Yeah, that's 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 a good point. I definitely, I, I enjoy. This comes some from the martial arts that I used to teach. I used to teach a lot of kids, and I would follow kids, and you see an impact that you have on people. Same thing with college students. I mean, to see to see an impact, it's a little less measurable because I might only have somebody for a semester. But to see that person come back and say, "Hey, Najee, I used I, I I was using MATLAB in my research, and look at this cool program that I wrote. That's cool. I was able to impact somebody. And while I didn't make that project, I was a link in making that project. So it is nice to be able to have a large impact on a large scale, rather than maybe making having one or two patents over the course of 10 or 20 years. Mm -hmm. Here I can help people. Each of them gets one or two patents. I have some low level of responsibility for dozens and dozens of those kinds of things. So you're right. Yeah, the impact is, is meaningful. Right. And so I, you kind of mentioned it there. How would you differentiate 
being a professor from being kind of like academia research, you know, mm-hmm. kind of doing both, maybe leaning more towards research and academia. How would you make that distinction? Um, I, so my, since my job as a teaching professor, I don't maintain a research lab. The faculty that are both researchers and teachers are also extraordinary people because they do service research teaching. They're split in three directions. Mm-hmm. I'm fortunate that I can be primarily split in only two directions. And for, for these tenure, tenure track faculty, they're maintaining a lab. They're, they're, they're panhandling for money constantly. They're maintaining grad students and watching their labs and the resources. They're running a small business. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't have to do that in my role. And instead, those 20 hours a week or 30, 40, 50 hours a day that they spend on their research lab, I can focus on teaching. Um, so there's a big difference there. But not every university has teaching positions. And sometimes they can be adjunct positions. So I'm fortunate to have a full-time teaching job where I get benefits. I get a salary. I get all of the most of the perks of being a faculty member, as opposed to an adjunct, which is a very difficult position where that would be more of a one-off. You get paid per semester as a part-time job without benefits or job security. So mm-hmm. these positions of teaching faculty are, are, are difficult to find. And um, if you find one and you can get it, fantastic. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing and drawing some like distinctions between those different things. I know people can kind of like see academia and not see like the different ways people can split their time within that. So I am glad you're able to go into that a little bit. Um, I think some students, I mean, I had this question for myself because I was a TA and I enjoyed just constantly learning in that way. Um, I think some students would be interested in this pathway. Um, but maybe don't know where to start. Mm-hmm. Um, so do like, do you know, like the typical career, early career path for somebody that would, would want to be where you're at? Like, if this is somebody's dream, what's mm-hmm. the early career? Where do they start? What are like the, some of the prereqs they should be looking to do maybe like at the grad moving into grad school level. So there's very little at the undergrad that I would think you would need um, because it's it's early. I TA'd for a little bit when I was an undergrad, and that but that was mostly just for me and for some pocket mo- uh, spending money mm-hmm. in grad school. So it, that's where you're going to identify. It's sort of ironic that you need a PhD where the focus is research so that you can get a job in teaching, but that's still the way it is right now. There are some programs that are teaching focused and you can do a PhD with a focus in say teaching or, or uh, engineering education, but those aren't all that common. So if you are interested, say you're a biomedical engineering graduate student and you want to go into teaching, mm-hmm. you may not realize that early on, but as long as you're TA, so you may have a TA opportunity enforced by your program just to keep your, to pay for your tuition, or you might get the opportunity to volunteer. As a grad student, I volunteered for teaching opportunities again, because I liked it. I wanted the experience. And I wanted some um, spending money. Question for you. Let's say somebody just can't get a TA opportunity. What are other ways that they could kind of like test the waters early? Mm-hmm. So you can, there are uh, engineering conferences that are uh, engineering educators conferences. So BMES has an engineering education division. ASEE has one. Mm-hmm. You can attend these conferences. They're not very expensive for grad students. And you can make contacts, network, and get some teaching experiences. You can also participate in a university's, they'll, they'll call it by different acronyms, but it might be faculty development. And faculty development programs will often be geared toward, have programs for graduate students and post and those might be, how do you build a syllabus? How do you develop a, a lesson plan? Mm. How do you, uh, uh, let's say, um, 
different kinds of grading methods. And these are programs, sometimes they're certificate programs. So if you do it for a year, maybe join a reading club, discussions on teaching, you don't have to be teaching yourself, but you can get a teaching certificate. And then when you're applying, so having been on the hiring committees for teaching positions, those are the things that we will look for to set apart somebody else. So say somebody has just done research and they wanna go into teaching, we would kind of ask ourselves, where's your teaching experience? How do you know you wanna teach? But if, even if somebody hasn't taught a class, let's say they have a teaching certificate, they attended a conference or two, then we know that they have some interest, they have some background knowledge, they took essentially a class or two on how to teach. And that shows both knowledge and interest in teaching. And that's what's gonna get them an interview to get a teaching position. And then last, I guess, don't discount the extracurriculars. I mentioned that I taught Taekwondo for decades. And that experience, while I'm not trying to get people to kick each other in class, although it would make for an interesting lecture, active learning, all right. I but don't know. That, you could that, pivot that into some biomechanics project. Yeah, forces, impact. Well, pivot is what you do with your supporting leg when you kick so that you build up momentum and get the little extra impact or impulse. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's That's all relevant. It's all around yeah. And, and I've used those things before, but all of those uh, outside teaching activities to say, if you taught sports activities, you gave music lessons, if you tutored, if you uh, did community service through an organization and had a leadership role, all of those things are relevant. It's as with everything, it's a matter of presenting it as it affects your teaching role. So if you taught martial arts, don't say that you can kick faster than anyone else. Say, I know how to keep an energy, energy level so that people will stay active for an hour. And if I can get people to kick for an hour, I can get them to pay attention to stress strain curves for an hour. So. Oh yeah, I guess um, kind of going off of that, it's it's more about the transferable skills, right? If you don't mm -hmm. have the TA position or whatever, you know, demonstrating in an interview those transferable skills that would do well in a teaching role. Um, did you? I'm assuming that you brought up Taekwondo in your interview. Can you yeah. give us a little bit of like generally what the interview process was like for this role? Is, yeah, like, is it the same? Is it you, who interviews you? Is it different than it? I don't know. Maybe it's probably the similar. I don't know what the difference interview. between a teaching position interview and an industry position would be like well, at all. I, I don't, but I can tell you what my interview was like and what we've done. So a typical interview for a teaching position will be... Um, you will give a job talk or a, a lesson, basically. So I might, I, they may say, give an uh, introductory topic on Ohm's law or an introductory lecture on, let's say, resistors in parallel and, and in series, something like that. Or they might say, just lecture on whatever you want. And what we're looking for in a 50 minute lecture is how you interact with potentially students that might be present, how you interact with the faculty. Do you use any sort of uh, active learning elements? Do you have a good lecturing skills? Do you keep engaged? Do you do something quirky? So I gave a lecture on strain gauges and how strain gauges work. I did some examples and I threw a little problem about um, what's the, the change in the uh, dimensions of the Empire State Building during a weather storm, during a thunderstorm. I may have given you the same problem, but that's, part of the interview. And then afterwards, you'll talk with the people. So there might be four people there. Um, I had four people at mine. And they'll ask you some standard questions. So to be fair, we try to ask the same questions to all of the candidates. Um, and then there might be some interviews, individual interviews later on. But questions like, what's your teaching? Uh, what's your most important teaching experiences? What type of, uh, can you give us an example of when you had your most success? Well, when did you have a problem? I mean, they're very similar to any type of industry type of questions that you might get. 
But the job talk or the, the elect practice talk is really one of the determining factors. And it's really important to have that prepared because somebody can look great chatting with their peers, but you're not being hired to chat with your peers. You're being hired to teach a class. And that's what we're looking for a lot. And that teaching experience is something that helps prepare that. Do you guys bring in students to sit in on these like fake intro lectures? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we try. Okay. Um, we we did that. We had some hirings going on the past couple years, and we definitely did that. Mm -hmm. What's the um What's the applicant pool like? Is there like a lot of people trying to get into this? Is it really selective? Is it a I guess what I'm asking is like, is this a really competitive thing to to kind of get into? Yes, yes, and yes. Yeah. So we have for a position that we might have open for a couple months, we have maybe a hundred applicants that will apply there. Many of those people may not be qualified. They may have just been sending an, uh, their application to every single school. So you can tell from the cover letter. Um, very quickly that the person knows they're applying to a teaching position or not. So we can screen the cover letters um, and the resumes and find out if this person knows what they're applying for. Mm -hmm. Of those, maybe we whittle it down to 25 or so, and then maybe reduce it from there. Um, and then we'll have short phone interviews, and then we'll come in for that job, that practice lecture and, and potentially meeting with uh, other faculty members. So the answer it is competitive. And with a lot of postgraduate positions, you have to cast a net wide. I didn't have the option of casting a net across the country, but really positions don't, you can't just say, I'm gonna live in Raleigh and apply for jobs. There might not be jobs. It's very, these are very specialized position. And that goes for grad school in general. The mm -hmm. more focused you are, the harder it can be to find a job that matches your skill set. Right. Definitely. Um, is there like, can you give a top two traits that you see in applicants that do really well in these positions? Um, you know, for recent grads that might be interested in this career path. Yeah. Like what are their traits and then what are they, what are they like? Like their passions, yeah. strengths. So uh, this, I guess it's not a simple one word answer, but um, uh, I would say combination of charisma and leadership because those can be difficult to teach. It's easier for somebody to learn electronics if they're a good teacher and teach it well than it is for somebody that's solid in electronics to learn how to teach and then teach a good class. And that's, that's I guess the most important thing is to be able to teach. So there, there are a lot of aspects to it. I, I'm, I would say probably, I mean, I said charisma, I said leadership, um, the ability to, to keep people's attention and to get them interested in learning would probably be pro the, the thing that we would look for because it's the hardest thing to teach. It can be learned, and in my case, I had the chance of learning it from all of those years of teaching martial arts. Um, but that's hard to teach and it takes time. Um, the second thing I would say would be versatility. In a teaching role, I was, I'm not being hired to teach one specific um, polymeric biomaterials class. Mm -hmm. That's for other people to teach. My job will be to teach sophomore and junior level classes. And which ones am I going to do? I might have some say in it, but I teach right now. I teach, I've taught mechanics, material science, biomaterials, statistics, physics. I've taught uh, make some more biomechanics. And that's all because I have that solid foundation in physics or in the biomedical engineer's case, by most programs, you're going to come out being conversant in every aspect of engineering, fluent in one. And then when you go for that job offering, if you say, hey, listen, I can, my, my focus is on materials, but I can teach this, this, and this, and this, give me a book, give me a month, and I'll be an expert. That's the kind of person that we want, because then we are not stuck with them teaching one class, and that's it. 
Totally. Definitely. And that's something that you learn as a student. You don't always appreciate it. Sometimes you say, why am I learning this? I'm never, ever, ever going to uh, do phonesis stresses in a uh, cantilevered beam. That's so basic. You're right. You won't. But you're learning how to learn. You're learning that this is uh, what resources, what references to consult. You're learning how to teach yourself something so that you go out into the big, scary world and you can teach yourself. That's what school is about, not necessarily to teach you individual facts, but to teach you how to learn and to give you the confidence to understand that you know how to do it. And that's relevant for industry or teaching positions, right? Yeah. Like every anyone who gets a job in industry is going to have to teach themselves some aspect of the job. And then even more true for the teaching roles, depending on what classes they throw at you for the semester. Yeah. I'm curious about uh, just when it comes to like the subject matter, do you ever get, do you ever feel bored teaching the same thing over and over or does it shift so much that it's impossible to, to stay I don't know like what do you think about yes. that I, I there, there, I've taught one class in particular that I I'm in a bit of a rut in and it's going to be exploded and redesigned next year so the answer is yeah there's a combination and everybody feels this level of ennui with repetition is that it's comforting to do the same thing that you know because you don't have to prep as much for it. But on the other hand, it's kind of boring. I've done this before. I've made the same widget a thousand times. Mm -hmm. um, it takes less time, but it's boring. So yeah, the answer is, yeah, I do get bored a little bit teaching the same stuff and I wouldn't mind teaching something different or redesigning the class um, to be new. Right. Sure. Well, and I'm sure with all the classes you teach, there's always some element of that ongoing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, I mentioned versatility. If you, if you are able to teach multiple classes, then you're not teaching the same electricity and magnetism. Four sections of it, fall, summer, spring, that's, that's kind of dull. Right. Yeah. So it's gotta be, there needs to be a bit of like, um, determination for, for self-improvement, I think mm -hmm. as a personality trait as well, to just keep branching out into new classes improving classes to kind of keep it fresh and engaging for yourself as well. And that, and it is, and it gets back to the assessment that you talked about before, because um, I, you need to have a little bit of motivation to do that because your assessment might be fine year to year to year, but if you don't feel that internal urge, I want to make this better. I want to improve this. I could have done better. I'm going to try again next time. Mm -hmm. um, your assessment is not going to change. In fact, you change something, you might even get worse marks uh, because people said he was disorganized or he didn't, this, this was too hard. So it's, it's something that you have to have internal and internal drive as well. Yeah. And I think, I think maybe I'm just going to kind of like harbor, I guess, but that deep down internal drive comes from an even further depth of like being passionate about it. And so what do you think are like for somebody that wants to do this, their, their passions in like, what are they driven by? Um, the reaction of the, the seeing the learning in the students is one main driver. Um, it doesn't matter what I lecture on if nobody understands um, the second thing is love of learning. Um, you don't learn something until you've taught it. I took ENM eight years later. I taught ENM, and man, did I understand electromagnetic induction the second time around? I love that stuff. Gauss's law, Ampere's law, those are awesome. But at the time, they were the bane of my existence. They ruined right. weekends. So, li liking learning um, and really getting something, getting excited about opening up a textbook, and then seeing that reaction on students' faces. Um, last thing might be also just enjoying the environment. I mean, it's it's an it's a very dynamic, person-oriented environment. Um, so if you're driven by seeing uh, interacting with people, 
that's also an important factor. You're awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much for it. joining us, Naji. I think yeah. this is really helpful and insightful for students who might be interested in taking this career path. Yeah. And anyone that's interested, I, I feel free to reach out to me. I'm happy to talk with people about these things. It's the teaching faculty role is something I didn't even really know existed. Um, and it's something that's still not always uh, presented as an option because totally. uh, everybody knows about industry. Everyone knows about research professors, but in between there's this kind of teaching role. And whether it's at a community college, uh, whether it's at a liberal arts school that doesn't have a research program, whether it's at a research university or a tier one, there are always teachers. And if you think back to your education, you may have had a couple of us teaching faculty and hopefully we had a fairly large impact and that could be you as well. Absolutely. You did. You did. <laughs> I didn't tell them all the things you did wrong when you were a student though. So you're lucky. Maybe we'll go let outtakes afterwards. Perfect. Love it. That'll be a fresh episode. <laughs> Stay tuned for the next episode of just our dumb emails. <laughs> I can pull them up right now if you'd like. Oh That's okay. God. We don't Please need to do don't. that right now. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Naji. Good to see you. Yeah. Good to see you too. BME Grad Podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. For more information on the BME Grad Podcast, visit bme.unc.edu. Right now, you can find that information under the News and Events tab. If you can, please subscribe or follow and leave a review. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.